further ado, let me welcome our distinguished speaker and good friend, Mia Bloom, who calculated in some recess of her mind that we've known each other for 29 years. Almost 29. Is, you know, we're born in the same uh, 25, hospital, 25 years. 25, 25 years. <laughs> 25 years. <laughs> 25 years. <laughs> it's a long time. Um, she, she was, was younger. <laughs> um, so she's a professor of communication at Georgia State University. She got her PhD from Columbia. A master's in Arab study from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, bachelor's degree at McGill uh, in Russian, Islamic, and Middle Eastern studies. She speaks eight languages. That's unbelievable. So um, I can she, swear in twenty. <laughs> that I believe. Uh, from many nights. She's also great at making titles for books. Uh, she's authored Dying to Kill, The Allure of Suicide Terror. She also wrote Bombshell, Women in Terror. And her latest is, of course, Small Arms, Children, and Terrorism, uh, which I find to be somewhat amusing. Uh, let me uh, end with this part of her preface, uh, the end of her preface. Um, said, we echo the prayer from the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, quote, for the people of Syria and Iraq, that God may strengthen the resolve of leaders to end the fighting and enjoy the future of peace. And with that, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you all for coming here. I know that it's the end of the semester and there's probably 20,000 things you'd all rather do. Um, for me, it's great. I've actually known most of your faculty uh, since they were in grad school in their 20s. Uh, it's great to see Huge, I'm sure, without socks. And Sebastian, <laughs> this has been an ongoing thing. I'm just like, it's minus 30, put on a pair of socks. And I've known Professor Desch uh, for as long as I've known Professor Lindley and, and Sebastian and Professor Klocek. So it's really wonderful to be here. I've never been to Notre Dame, and I didn't know that I was going to be able to have the first book launch here at a Catholic institution. So how perfect that I ended with a prayer from the Catholic Church. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about, so you guys, this is the first anyone's hearing about it. Amazon won't have it for another uh, two weeks. Um, the book has a really interesting background. I, as you can tell, I've cornered the market on books and about terrorism. Um, all of my books, Suicide Terrorism, Women in Terrorism, Children in Terrorism, I guess the next one can be Dogs in Terrorism. Not a lot of dogs in terrorism. Um, but generally, genuinely though, um, I have been studying this for a very long time, since well before anyone really was interested in it. And it is just a very unfortunate coincidence that 9-11 happened and there were about 12 terrorism experts in the country, and then on the 13th there were thousands, and I don't know where they came from. But so I, I've, I've been very fortunate to sort of suss out where the next trends are gonna be. So what you're gonna see today is not just from the book, I'm gonna give you a little hint into some of the other working, work that I do um, that uh, does large data analytics and neural networks um, for big data. So I'm gonna give you a little hint for some new projects um, in the horizon. So I have to do this because the project was funded by the Minerva Research Initiative. I have to do this disclaimer every time I give a talk that says, um, I do not represent the United States government, certainly not this one. Um, I don't represent the Department of Defense or the Department of the Navy or the Minerva Research Initiative. And so I've been very fortunate that um, I've 
been supported by this Minerva Research Initiative for a number of years. Um, uh, a number of the projects that I've worked on, so Bombshell was sponsored by Minerva, and so, so is Small Arms. And I also do work on rape and war, and I am so much fun at parties. So I have a number of different interests, and it also means that during the Q&A, if you have a question that isn't about small arms, don't worry about it. I'll try. Uh, these are the other books that Dan was nice enough to mention. As you can see, my preferred cover that they wouldn't let me use in the US was Barbie with the suicide belt. That's the world, that's the global cover for the UK and the rest of the world. Um, and uh, that's not me in Dying to Kill. That's just a picture from Germany from 2002. But people have mistakenly assumed that that's me as a child. All right. <laughs> so what, what is, what's the bluff? I like to start the bottom line up front. So you know ahead of time, what are the takeaways? And the takeaway from this is that children are increasingly being targeted for recruitment in ways that we have not seen before. And part of this is that ever since the release of the 1996 Marshall Report, Gracia Machel, there had been a decline of the use of child soldiers, or at least countries didn't brag about the use of child soldiers. And all of a sudden, ISIS emerges, and we are seeing not just an increase in the number of children that are being used on the front lines, but also the fact that they're using it as part of their propaganda and that they're not hiding it. They're actually putting it front and center. And so that when you look at the sort of body of ISIS propaganda videos, for example, the one that was released yesterday is one of the few that didn't talk about kids. There is an amazing amount of material that focuses on the role of children. And what they call them is the Ashbal al-Khilafa, which are the cubs of the caliphate. And I was watching on the plane Little Drummer Girl, and it's like, it's supposed to be said in 1983, and he's Palestinian, and he uses the word Ashbal, and I'm like, nope. But anyway, um, we are starting to see the use of children in ways never before. So what were the, the questions that were driving the research? Well, part of it is we have to ask the right questions. When interviewing terrorists, I'll give you a little hint. If you ask a terrorist, why did you join a group, you're going to get a set answer that has been rehearsed that is almost like a script. So you generally don't start with why. You start with how. What does the process look like? And by finding out what the process looks like of how someone gets involved in terrorism, you're going to get a lot more information, and then you can get to how. So I started with, how do children become involved in these groups? Were they coerced, or is there any degree of voluntariness? Why do the groups recruit children in the first place? Are there structural conditions? You know, we hear a lot about, for example, from our wonderful colleague from Chicago, Robert Pape. I was looking to see if Sebastian looked up, yeah. Uh, so we hear from Pape that it's about occupation. We hear from other, we other, from other people we hear that it's about cultures of martyrdom. Well, what do these things even mean? How do these structural conditions that affect everyone necessarily only motivate a very small sliver of people either to join terrorist groups or to get their kids to join terrorist groups? So I delve into this as these structural conditions. And then what are the long-term consequences? So I'm just back from Sweden two days ago where um, the government's asked me to help them design their DDR program to help them reintegrate children because they don't know what to do with the women and children of ISIS. And so that's what I've been doing. Again, weirdly enough, chapter eight uh, ends up addressing, not knowing at the time when I finished the book, 
that ISIS would be over by the time the book came out. That last chapter is, so what do we do now? It's important that I make the distinction between the children who are involved in terrorist group and child soldiers. So part of the book takes aim, in a very nice way, because we're friends, at Peter Singer's book from 2005, Children at War. Because what Peter Singer did was he collected anyone who was part of a militant group and under the age of 18 and collapsed that category together. But one of the things that struck me is that the ways in which child soldiers are recruited is very different from the ways in which child terrorists are recruited. And so I used initially this definition of children and boys and girls under 18 who are involved in any capacity in one of these military groups. But I had to problematize this because first of all, 18 is really a Western construct. Age of adulthood varies from culture to culture and from place to place. And so this notion of 18 doesn't resonate in certain places. And so I thought to myself, okay, I'm looking at the data. This is complicated. I don't want to be sort of this ideological Western imperialist about it. And so what happened is I thought, well, you know, maybe 15 is a better choice. The reason is because in the Quran, there are many hadith, which are legal rulings, that say if someone, like a woman, has to be accompanied by a mahram, a chaperone, and that chaperone can be 15 or older. So I'm thinking, wait a second, if you're going to give the responsibility of the family honor and the life of your sister or your mom, 15 has to be a cutoff age, as well as the fact that when ISIS was going from village to village recruiting, they said, okay, who's 15 and over? So I basically had 15 as a cutoff point instead of 18. But the thing that I really put a large bullseye and target at was this reportedly 300,000 children under arms. This has been a data point since 1998 that has been used over and over again. And there is no evidence to substantiate where the 300,000 come from. And I'll give you an example. While I was writing this of a think tank in the UK, the Quilliam Foundation, published a report saying that 31,000 women in ISIS were pregnant. And my incredibly sarcastic tweet was, how nice of the women to get pregnant in such round numbers? I mean, so what I'm not doing is I'm not guesstimating. I actually counted dead kids. And so it's a little gruesome, I apologize. But it's a more accurate calculation of what was going on. Now, I still ended up getting a lot more than what the UN got but they're accurate numbers that have been validated. Um, so part of it was, in terms of political science theory, you know, this notion of children who are forced to bear arms really eliminate this distinction between who's a combatant and who's a civilian, what's an adult and what's a child. But also, we have people from neoliberal institutionalism perspective that have argued that there are norms in war. And basically, this book says, if there are norms in war, they do not apply to ISIS and they do not apply in this case. As well as the fact that I'm validating something that Akvarina and Reich published in 2006, well before ISIS, that the taboo against using children has all but disappeared. It has thoroughly broken down. So what's the theory? Well, the thing is, there were some really interesting case studies of child soldiers. There were biographies and autobiographies. For example, Ishmael Bey, A Long Walk Home. China Titechi, which was, again, you have all these amazing stories, many of which have been turned into films. Um, but there really wasn't good IR theory to explain children's involvement in terrorism. So I made two calls to the two smartest people I knew. I couldn't reach Sebastian. 
So let me stop there. So other than Sebastian, the other two were Jim Ferron and, and Bob Jervis. And I said, what is the theory in IR as applied to children? And what Jervis explained to me is they're neither man, state, or war. They're not in any of the levels of analysis. They don't vote. And so we don't really have a good theory. Okay. The next thing that Fearon suggested, which was fantastic, was what about an economic substitution model? There is theories in economics of child labor, and we could apply the child labor models to the use of children in these terrorist groups. And so the question then was, were children um, either a substitute or a complementary good? And what I mean by good is not that it's good, but let me go through what I mean by this. Social science research in this area of studies has generally focused on the supply side, poverty, education, war, um, whether there was securitization in refugee camps, uh, ideologies, whether they were religious or ethnic identities, uh, the use of whether families were dead or alive, so the presence or absence of family, and then, of course, Sageman's bunch of guys, whether people were recruited in this fashion. What the book did and the project and beforehand was both look at the demand side and the supply side. So what I mean by complementary or substitute, most of the, the theories of child soldiers, if there were any, looked at them as a substitute. You lost the adults in battle, and then you needed to find replacements for the, adult, the adults who had died, and so maybe you would recruit women, or maybe you would re recruit youth. And we saw this in Liberia, we saw this with Kony, we saw this um, with various uh, DRC, Sierra Leone, all these places. The idea, though, however, was maybe they weren't just substitute goods, maybe they were a complementary good. And what I mean by complementary good is maybe the children had some skill set that the adults didn't have. So I'm going to assume that other than the adults, most of the people in the room have never purchased a Middle Eastern rug. If you are in the Middle East and you go to buy a rug, the first thing that they're going to show you is they're going to flip it over and they're going to show you the quality of the rug is knots per inch. Now, the reason why we see so many children involved in this industry in India and Pakistan and Egypt and all these places is because children have little fingers and little fingers can make little knots. And the little fingers making little knots, something that the adults can't do. And so I thought for a second, well, wait a second, maybe the children, it's not just a substitute effect. Maybe they actually have a skill set or some innate benefit to the organization simply because they're children. So basically, I don't have an answer. The answer is, it can be either and it varies. And the way it varies is, what is the ideology of the conflict? What are those structural conditions I mentioned before? Education, poverty, occupation. What were the specific temporal states? So was, were children used at the beginning, the middle, or the end? Um, what was the availability or lack of availability of adults? Could they mobilize adults? And then finally, um, were they targeting hard or soft targets? And what I mean by hard target, hard target's a military target. A soft target is a market, a school, a synagogue. And so the idea was targeting changes by most terrorist groups. Some terrorist groups, this is going to sound weird, but some terrorist groups have a propensity to avoid civilian casualties. So for example, midway through the troubles in the, North, in the Northern Ireland case, they would call in to the police and say, okay, we're about to explode a bomb at Harrods. And the police would say, what's the code word? 
the IRA would give them the code word for that week or that month, and they would empty out Harrods. The bomb would still go off, but they were avoiding civilian casualties. So some terrorist groups are very cognizant of how they are perceived. And so they're going to be sensitive to public opinion, and so they're going to make certain choices, whereas other terrorist groups deliberately go for the soft target. They want to blow up the market. They want to blow up as many women and children as they can. And so when you're looking at the mimetic features of a terrorist operative, do they blend in with their surroundings or, like with children, are they ignored? I know we probably in the West find it hard to believe that children would ever be ignored, but in other parts of the world, the kids are running around and no one even notices or sees the children. And so that is actually a benefit. But the thing that, and again, because of the bottom line up front and the bluff, one of the things that ISIS did that was not done in the DRC and wasn't done by Kony and wasn't done in other African conflicts where they had dedicated child units was they had mixed units called Ingamasi. Ingamasi is the word in Arabic for commando. Interestingly enough, that was the word ISIS used to uh, describe the Sri Lankan suicide bombers as commandos, Ingamasi. The Ingamasi and ISIS were units mixed with adults and children. And what do they do? They would send the children in first. It would cause just a moment of hesitation because a kid is jumping in and you're like, do I shoot the kid? Do I don't shoot the kid? What's going on? But also, it causes a psychological effect on the adults in the group. No one is going to defect. No one's going to not go into the target after the kids went in. And it's the same reason why both the American and the Israeli military, when they're training people to jump out of planes, the person who's training them is a woman. And the first person that jumps out of the plane is a woman. And no guy is not going to jump out of the plane when the first person who jumped was a woman. It's the same psychology that people are going to be thrust. They're not, even if they're on the fence about it, they're going to be goaded into doing something. So let me tell you a little bit about where I get the data and how I found it. So I'm going to just, I need the pointer for a second. So here are, okay. So inside the ISIS encrypted platform Telegram, which is uh, an interesting um, use of access, which I've had for about three and a half years, went in to collect all the pictures. They're called about to die pictures of the children. Now, I also collected the adults. We collected everything. In fact, the other, the second Minerva project that I have, not this one, is creating a database that will be open and accessible to everyone who's doing research on terrorism and not monetizing it so that other people can run different kinds of data analytics on the data that we've collected. Every day we get about 30 to 50 pieces of ISIS propaganda. So for example, yesterday, as you heard on the news, the Al-Furqan network released this interview with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. I sent it to CNN. I sent it to Fox News. I'm standing in line at TSA, and I'm like, yeah, this is probably not a good idea downloading ISIS videos. But they overheard me. The person behind me who was a little bit freaking out was like, OK, she just called Fox News. So, she so if I just called CNN, probably they would have had me arrested. But because I called Fox News, I was like, OK, if, if you guys at Fox, if you don't have an Arabic speaker, I'll do the translation before I get on the plane. But so it gives me access to really interesting stuff. So here is, let me walk you through it for those of you who don't speak Arabic. So this is Abu Dujana al-Maslawi. So we know he's from Mosul because his uh, kunya, his nom de guerre, 
is Al Maslawi. We have here Ajal breaking news. We have here the Hijri date, which we could translate into Gregorian date. And then we have here what he did. Now, the fact that it says here, Taqabbalahu Allah, which means may God accept his soul, we know that he is a martyr, and so that's part of it. We also have additional post-production additions, like here, if it's a caravan of martyrs. Um, Abu Dar is from Boko Haram, so we know his name, where he is. It's got the regional media office, so we have quite a bit of information. So, for example, as soon as I saw in 2016, Al Sinjari, I called Rukmini Kalamaki and I said, we've got dead Yazidi kids. Because if it's Sinjari, he's Yazidi. So we were able to confirm some of these images with Western media sources because, like, for example, I have his real name, Asad Alyas Majo. That's his kunya, his nondegare. That's his real name. So we were able to validate at least 10% of the names in the database of the dead children because oftentimes they would be foreign fighter kids and so the news story would be in the Australian or in the British press or in the American press. The other thing I was able to get was what kind of roles. So what did they do when they were in the group? And so for example, they used a lot of children as uh, suicide car bombers. They taught eight-year-old kids how to drive, uh, automatic, not stick. But they taught the kids how to drive for the sole purpose of making them suicide car bombers. So we would have this image right before the attack. Then we would have the video of the attack. Boom, and you would see the explosion. I'm only going to show you pictures of them while they're alive. The other thing that really amazed me is that they were using children on the Dawa caravan as recruiters. So they would find a child who was particularly articulate and attractive and you know, really good at public speaking, and they would put that child on the Dawa caravan for the same reason that the Israelis send the female trainer out of the plane first. By having a child on the Dawa caravan, they were shaming the adults because what? The kid's going to do the fighting and the adults are not? And then what I did was I created um, a two-by-two two matrix, of course, a two-by-two two matrix of what kinds of roles we saw children in. Now, this is overwhelmingly ISIS, but I think this can be applied to other groups in which we see combat and formal roles were the most. Here's the Ngamasi, foot soldiers, executioners, snipers, but also we have them in more peaceful roles. Activist, apprentice, cook, porter. So not every child that was an ISIS was an executioner, and not every child that was being brainwashed by the caliphate is necessarily someone who was trained to be a cub. The other thing, in addition, I was able to do a subset of the kids who were foreign fighter children. So, for example, Turkestani, Yemen, Afghanistan, Malaysia, Tajikistan. You see here, this is caravan of martyrs. So sometimes they got an additional, almost like honorary title, like extra credit for being caravan of martyrs. But we could get a lot of information about where the kids came from, where they died, and what they did. The thing that struck me that was the most surprising was that they had pre-selected a group of foreign fighter children who were very attractive, very photogenic, and they used them, and they didn't use them as bombers. They used them in the propaganda videos over and over again. So in May 2016, they produced a video that they called Sans which means blood for blood in French, but if you say it really fast, it means 100%. And I thought, there is no way ISIS is as good as I am with titles. 
Sure enough, they copied it from a Moroccan rap star. But three months later, the very same kids were executing Kurdish prisoners. So they weren't single-use foreign fighter children. They were using them over and over again. And you could see here, they even let you know who's Egyptian. And who, this is Jojo Jones. He's British. They identified each of them to show what countries they were originally from. And for me, this was United Colors of Benetton ISIS. They kept using the same kids over and over. Using this methodology, I was able to go back in time and look at the videos and trace the same kids. These are the Majo brothers. So here they were kidnapped in April 2014. And here is where they exploded in December 2016. As well as this young boy, I don't know his name. I, th I think I'm very close to finding out. There was a tweet the other week that I have to track down. Um, but was about two and a half here, four and a half years old. He shot a man in the head. There's a picture of it in the book. I had to blur out the bloody head. It was a little graphic. But this is not surprising if you study ISIS. For me, Abdullah was really interesting because you could track him in 2013, 2014, and 2015 when he executed two Russian prisoners accused of being FSB spies. And so you could track the life cycle of the same kid appearing over and over, year after year, watching them literally grow up in front of the camera. But these were not the kids that ISIS sacrificed. So who are all the kids? Well, when they controlled territory, they controlled the orphanages, the schools, and the hospitals. And they emptied out the hospitals and the orphanages, and they used those kids basically single-use. They trained them, they put them on the battlefield, and they used them in any number of these roles in which they were pretty much guaranteed death. The other thing I did for the project and for the book, I talk about the structural conditions of education. You know, kids are not born hating. We know this even from domestic US politics. They have to be taught to hate. So what ISIS did was they first started using Saudi textbooks and then created their own because the ideology was virtually indistinguishable. But they created a series called al Kharouf. These are um, grade two level books. And it would be like B for Bandukia or G is for gun. The idea is that they had imbued every element of education with military um, imagery. And they normalized fighting in such a way that this is their math test. So this is from, this is from the book. And this is from an actual exam. Uh, the backwards, th the, sorry, the three is actually four. I Arabic numerals are a little bit strange. Um, so he did. So so here it's two, and this is four. He didn't he didn't get it wrong. But anyway, um, this is how they were doing math. But this is hands down my favorite. This is how we learn to tell time. The clock is affixed to a bundle of dynamite, and you see it's what time o'clock? It's boom o'clock. No, it's nine o'clock. It's 10.30, it's a quarter after one. But this is how they were learning to tell time. So basically, every element of education, geography, grammar, mathematics, everything is imbued with military images and ideas. And so it becomes so normalized that the kids don't even realize that they are becoming immune. <coughs> but ISIS is not unique. When I did my field research in Northern Ireland at Linen Hall, the IRA produced also textbooks for children. And they had, as you see, this is the poster for the IRA, the same image of the woman holding the gun. 
A is for Armalite. Armalite is the AR in the AR-15. And so it's not that ISIS did something that no one had ever done before, but they took it to a new level. So third takeaway, every single group in Syria used children on the front lines, including allies of the United States, including the groups we like. Here's what is, I keep getting caught, sorry. Here's what is going to surprise you. This black line is ISIS. This red line is Free Syrian Army. There are no good guys in Syria and Iraq. Um, I can tell you John Brennan really hated this slide. I presented this to the US government, and uh, I think I may have embarrassed a few people, because they were pushing to support the YPG and the YPJ. But even the YPG and the YPJ were using kids. So the fact is, let's not delude ourselves into thinking that ISIS are the only bad guys in the region. And in fact, given the death of all these kids, and these are not kids who were victims like of Gauta barrel bombs. These are kids who were on the front lines that the groups themselves were bragging about. Assad still killed 10 times more. So in the grand scheme of things, we are still dealing with a regime that exists and is evil. So what were some of the results from the data? I was able to show that there was an increase in the use of kids, at least until the Mosul campaign. We did a month-by-month -month count, and then there was a decline. Now, as this decline happens, it's a bit of a whack-a-mole. We start to see an increase of the use of children in places like Afghanistan, what they call Khorasan province, as well as Egypt. When I looked at the nationality of the kids who had died in Syria, you see there was about 94 in this three-year period. Most of them were Syrian, some were unknown, Iraqi, and a handful of other nationalities. But when you look at the same period of time for Iraq, you have a lot more kids, like 300% more children, but also a lot more different nationalities. And so it was very strange that we could not explain why there was such an amazing diversity in the ethnicities in Iraq, far more than the Syrian. But it also allowed us to look at the micro-level data about where these kids were coming from. And here was something really surprising. So I don't know if you know, but from the data on ISIS, does anyone know what is the country that generated the most foreign fighters to ISIS? Does anyone know? It was Tunisia. We don't have one dead Tunisian kid. So basically it meant the Tunisians went single men, got married, had kids, because there's a lot of Tunisian kids in ISIS now. They're three and four and five years old, but they went single. Now, maybe that implies that there's some motivation there, that ISIS was able to resolve the marriage conundrum. So what were the findings? The findings are every single group in Syria and Iraq used kids on the front lines, including the regional allies of the United States. The number of ISIS child fighters increased until the Battle of Mosul. ISIS in Iraq deployed over 300% more than ISIS in Syria, and that they recruited a more diverse set. ISIS foreign fighter children were drawn from fewer countries than the adults. Western foreign fighter children were more likely to appear in the propaganda than, delivering ser or than on the front lines. We saw them delivering sermons as car bombers, but for the most part, the Western kids were the stars of United Colors of ISIS, or Benetton ISIS. And that there is, and again, this needs, I need more validation for this. There is an approximate month lag between losses in battle and an increased reliance on child bombers. So that there might still be a substitution effect, but the data 
We still, we need, to, we need to crunch that data a little bit more. We've had a few more kids, and now we have other areas where there's children, Libya, Iraq, uh, sorry, Libya, um, Afghanistan, and increasingly places like the Philippines and Marawi. All right, so moving forward, what am I doing? I'm looking at the other groups. I'm interested in Al-Shabaab, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, and I did field research in Sri Lanka with the Tamil Tigers. The book addresses all of these, but we're doing micro-level data collection on Boko Haram. And for those of you who read international security and security studies, we know that some of the research coming out from uh, Jason Warner and Hillary Matfess, that there have been 453 female suicide bombers for Boko Haram that constitute about 52.5% of the total. What's interesting is that Boko Haram only started using suicide bombers in 2011, and they only started using women in 2014. So even though the men have a head start, there have been so many female suicide bombers for Boko Haram that they have been more uh, like the majority of the total. We know, for example, with Boko Haram, we've been seeing an uptick. Interestingly enough, although I showed you Al-Barnawi, the boy from Boko Haram, with the 453 female suicide bombers, not one has appeared on the ISIS network. They're not interested in women, not that way. For them, women are a commodity, but they have not engaged women on the battlefield. So, and I joke, even though I would personally benefit, people would buy my book, I'm the one going, not so fast. ISIS is not using women. And there are other people who are jumping to the conclusion that women are being activated by ISIS, and I'm like, nope, nope. And so, again, we have to be very circumspect when we get the news about terrorism, because in the first 24 to 48 hours, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of fog of war, I'm not gonna use the term fake news, but there's a lot of different kinds of motivated incentives to sell you a narrative that may fit with a certain ideology. So what was the methodology? And I had this before knowing that I was gonna be asked this, was, okay, so the primary data collection for the book included interviews in Pakistan, Israel, Palestine, and I'm supposed to go to Nigeria soon, although I'm told it's a little dangerous ever since they killed that British woman last month, so I'm not sure the IRB is gonna be excited about me going. Um, I did digital ethnography, which was combing through social media, both on the open API as well as the encrypted platform of uh, Telegram, and I looked at a lot of the secondary literature and media interviews and biographies. Um, the research I did in the Pakistan Swat Valley was really interesting because I spent um, several months going back and forth to Sabaun, which was a rehabilitation facility in Sawat. Sawat is the area where Malala was shot. So it used to be really intense. It's much better now. And I met a lot of these kids. And it was really funny because here is the valley and here is Abbottabad. And I remember asking the kids, so uh, what did you think in 2011 about Abbottabad? And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, you know, bin Laden. And these kids who had been part of the Pakistani Taliban said, who's bin Laden? So it really does maybe challenge our preconceived notions about how coherent many of the terrorist organizations are and how much in control the leaders are versus sort of the subnational leaders that are taking local grievances and lomming onto these big organizations because it's convenient. Um, and I produced, uh, we, this is me in front of the Sabaun. I don't dress like this when I'm in Pakistan. And I blend. 
Um, so where did I get some of this stuff? Let me show you a little bit of Telegram. This is Telegram. You can see here's Telegram. Um, and so what, what I could do was not only comb through the Telegram in order to collect the images that you've seen today, but also see what they were saying. How were they discussing certain attacks? What were they planning? As well as what were some of the characteristics of the platform that actually tended to foster a kind of social media addiction? So even if no one in the room speaks Arabic, you could see that here at 102, all of these channels produce the exact same tweet or telegram posting. You can just tell from the image is the same. We realized that we would see the exact same thing posted simultaneously across hundreds. Ah, so they're using bots. The other thing that they did is they exploited what we call the fear of missing out or FOMO. Because if you didn't click on the link within 30 minutes, it was gone. And so you could not leave the computer. Like you couldn't go see a movie, you couldn't go see the Avengers for three hours because you couldn't be away from the platform. So that even if you had a normal life, now you were being taken out of your normal existence to become dependent on this platform and never leave it. The other thing they started to do was they were looking for people like me, they were looking for lurkers. I won't show you the picture of what ISIS says, but they're very mean, they're very mean about me. They've said some very nasty things. And I, I would like to say for the record, I am in fact slave market worthy. I don't care what ISIS says, but, and, and, and I, I took great offense, <laughs> no, kidding, I really don't care. No, and I will tell you one thing, when they started sending me gifts of beheadings, that's when I used one of those swear words in Arabic that I'm so good at, so yeah, I, I think I probably violated the IRB by texting back, Nick Nafsakum, and I was like, okay, luckily no one here speaks Arabic. All right, so, what did the data collection look like? So, approximately from... Since 2017, 35,000 pieces of data we are still collecting every day till now. We're only going to have it cleaned and coded, but the project is ending. We were able to measure the apexes and the naders of the media production. And in fact, there was a decrease when they lost the territorial control of Syria and Iraq, but the quality of what was coming out didn't decline. Um, one of the things we're doing with this big data is we're doing the application of machine learning and neural networks. And so what we're doing is we're teaching the computer how to visually interpret an image and be able to identify things inside the image so that you can run much faster because, you know, doing it, hand coding it and doing it with your eye, 35,000 pieces of data is going to take a long time. But if you can do a neural network and teach the computer what to look for, you can do different kinds of analyses very quickly as well as we started to discover new tactics, because I'm all about tactical innovation, first with suicide terrorism, then women, now kids. They've started using handicapped people or people with disabilities. And in particular, they were recruiting them to be car bombers, because who is not going to be an obvious operative is gonna be a person who's handicapped and injured. As well as they started promoting the fact that they were actually a proto-state in the making and that they were going to institute the rule of law. And so you started to see the elimination of sources of vice, whether it was drugs or music, pills, marijuana. So they're promoting themselves as being the keepers of law and order. Wait, yeah? I've got one more. If you're interested, I'm just gonna do one more. The model then, in terms of recruitment online, because there's a little bit more, there's a new project on cyber is that the online grooming looks a lot like the grooming 
we see with pedophiles. In other words, the only thing I added to this, I'm working with um, someone who's at Gnomes, who is a colleague of mine in the Child Protection Center at Penn State, because all of a sudden Penn State became really interested a few years ago in the protection of children against pedophilia. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> the only thing I added here was culture of martyrdom, but all of this exists in the child protection literature. How do you groom kids for sexual predation? Sorry, I know about Notre Dame. Am I talking about something a little too touchy here? But yes, so what happens with predation? And how do we understand that it's not just the children who are groomed, but it's the parents who are groomed in order to provide access? Which again is something you'll often hear um, in many of these scandals, whether it's in Pennsylvania or in Ireland. And I think I am done. So let me go back, put up my questions question. And thank you so much for spending your afternoon with me and seeing my very depressing slides. Thank you. So I'll keep a list. Everybody raises their hands, wants to ask questions, <coughs> starting with Francis. Thank you for the presentation. So the rationale for reporting children is really interesting. You mentioned two. I don't know how you call them. So one is the, the surprise element that the, the opponent would or, or disguise element that the opponent would hesitate for a minute, and then the other is shaming the their, their you know the, their own people, uh, or goading them to really thrust into the, the mission. Uh, how successful do you see the first one nowadays? Because the Americans, they I, I guess they are they learn about this and they are trained. The soldiers are trained to to see the the children soldiers not anymore as innocent. So is that still effective? Okay, so there's more than two, but the two you identified are absolutely correct. Um, there isn't a standard operating procedure in the American military about what to do with children. Uh, in fact, military commanders are making case-by-case -case decisions. And the problem with that is an individual soldier uh, may be, I, I don't know if this movie with um, Bradley Cooper about the American soldier, I'm forgetting the name, but you see him at some point did anyone remember that? Yes, thank you. So at the, in the movie, at some point, he's got the kid in his line of sights, and he's, he's like, what do I do, what do I do? I think because there isn't a standard operating procedure, like there is in other militaries, like the Canadian military has just established an SOP, that I think the individual is probably going to feel a lot more guilt and, and suffer from PTSD as a result. But as far as whether it's effective, the Ingamasi raids were very effective because you only need to have the target hesitate for a split second. Whereas these Ingamasi raids were in a series of the first, the first group goes in shooting, the second group goes in, and they have suicide belts, and the third group goes in and films it. And so in terms of efficacy, on the battlefield, children themselves were not hugely effective. But in terms of the element of surprise and the goading, absolutely. But I think there is also, as I mentioned, that there was plus or minus about a month of an increase after the loss in battle. There was also a substitution effect. So it wasn't just the complementary, it was substitution as well. In Boko Haram, what happened is I started to notice with the female Boko Haram suicide bombers that you, know, you had six and seven-year-olds, and then you had 35-year-old women. And I thought, well, where's everybody in between? So I called Dion Searcy, who is the reporter for the New York Times, and I said, are they keeping the women of childbearing age? Yes, because in the end, the women of childbearing age were more valuable to bear children 
little Boko Haram babies than they were to be used in a chicken market or a cell phone market. And so each group, so there isn't one explanation that explains every group. Every group is looking at this recruitment through a different lens and seeing how it benefits them. But they are still, you know, dare I say, rational, rationally calculating actors that are making cost-benefit decisions. And that's why ISIS makes the distinction between Syrian and Iraqi kids and foreign kids. And not only foreign kids, but Western foreign kids versus Saudi foreign kids versus um, Turkish foreign kids. So efficacy will have to be measured, I think, in the future when we have a little bit more data in terms of individual battles. But this is the first cut. Great. Jason? Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, I was talking for a more provocative <laughs> uh, So I was curious about uh, you seem to suggest a lot of ways that children worked for ISIS or rebel groups. Are there any examples that you found of where the rebel group, particularly ISIS, thought children would be good at something and found out they weren't? And did they learn and adjust along the way? Were children just good for everything? So one of the so now that there are some kids in the refugee camps or in the IDP camps. Um, <laughs> Journalists have access to interviewing them. Uh, as you can imagine, it's a little more challenging to get an IRB to interview kids who are interned at an IDP camp. They're triply protected. Their children and their prisoners, child prisoners, uh, I don't think I can get the IRB. So I am basing a lot of this on interviews that I've overheard. The interviews, so there was <laughs> a few of the kids were kicked out of ISIS because they were kind of dumb. So the kids were not capable. They could not handle some of the responsibilities. Um, some of the kids who just couldn't learn Arabic, uh, they found, you know, they're like, you know, just, just go home, just go home. Um, so they weren't even useful enough to be used as cannon fodder on the battlefield. But I haven't, I haven't explored that in great detail. I have, and it was really interesting because um, a Danish reporter sent me, which was very kind, but he sent me the actual interviews that he had done with a translator. And I'm listening, and I'm hearing what the kid says, and then I'm hearing what the translator is translating, and that's not what the kid said. And it really made me wonder, you know, we have this degree of fetishizing field research, that we think we're going to get something in, in the field that we couldn't possibly get outside the field. But as I'm hearing the interviews, and it's being mistranslated, if you don't speak the language and you can't hear that the translator is making a mistake. Now again, it wasn't that I understood the dialect completely, but I know the difference between three and four. And so the kid says four months, and the translator says three months, and I'm sitting there going, okay, that doesn't make any sense to me. So what, were, what else was the, kid, the kids not good at? You know, for they really didn't talk about the kids' failings. Uh, they talked about the kids in such a way to empower them. And so what was really interesting is that they gave the kids, and I talk about this in the book, the power of life and death over adults. In a society in which kids are not at the top of the pyramid, they're kind of at the bottom. I mean, women are lower, but they're kind of at the bottom of the pyramid. And so what ended up happening is they empowered these kids in such a way that the kids actually found the experiences to be both powerful and pleasant. And so when I spoke to the kids in Pakistan who had been 
captured slash rescued from the Pakistani Taliban about their experiences, what was really shocking is that some of them had very positive experiences of having been with the terrorist group, that they didn't see it as entirely negative, and that they missed their friends. And so there is this extent to which they saw it as voluntary. Let me contrast that with the kids in Sri Lanka, in the PKK. These kids wanted to be, sorry, PKK, in the LTT, these kids wanted to be in the Tamil Tigers. They competed with each other. And so we would see also in the videos, the kids wanted to be in an operation and they would have different contests. Who wins? That's, that becomes the martyr. But I didn't see the failures as much as what they considered the successes. Hi, thank you for your talk. I have two quick questions. Um, one is that I believe you mentioned that the way in which child soldiers are recruited is different from how terrorist groups recruit children, but we know there's not always a clear distinction between these types of groups. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your differentiation between a terrorist group and, say, an armed group that may sometimes use terrorism as a strategy at various points in its lifetime. Are these children child soldiers? Are they child terrorists? Does it depend on the type of tasks that are assigned to them? Um, and then my second question is that there's some variation in some of the other groups that you mentioned at the end. So for example, Hezbollah wins seats in elections. And I would just think that a group that has an at least locally legitimate political wing might recruit very differently from a group that Absolutely. Thank you. Those are great questions. Not that your others sucked, but this is a good one. Um, so let me start with the Hezbollah first with the variation. Absolutely. And in fact, that uh, uh, we read today that President Trump is going to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. And there's not one expert on the Muslim Brotherhood that thinks that this is a good idea. The fact that the terrorist organizations also have a political wing shouldn't surprise you. Sinn Féin and the IRA. In fact, most terrorist groups, not ISIS, have a political wing, and very often participate in electoral politics. And so Hezbollah has been able to win as much as 12% of the Lebanese parliamentary seats when it has gone for election. We know Hamas won the election. And so we see terrorist groups participating in electoral politics. And so this is when it starts getting interesting that, you know, there's almost like a Bayesian analysis that can be done to compare the groups which have a political sort of peaceful wing providing hearts and minds and benefits versus the militant wing that its only job is to kill. Now, a terrorist group who only kills is not going to be a long-life long terrorist group. That is, you know, like Bruce Jones talks about um, how long terrorist groups survive. Groups that survive a long time diversify their portfolios, like Hezbollah, they build hospitals, they have mobile units, and so they do things other than just kill people. Groups that only kill people uh, don't live long. That's one of the reasons ISIS is promoting itself now, uh, or at least before the end of the caliphate, as a proto-state, that it was, you know, it was inoculating the sick. It had a lot of very positive images on its, on its uh, telegram platform that they were feeding the poor and doing all these bene benevolent activities. But I am basically, and I've always done this, I don't look at the ideology of the group. I look at how, who are they targeting and for what purposes. And I use the State Department definition of terrorism, which is if you are deliberately targeting civilians um, for the purpose of disseminating a message, then that's terrorism. Now, there's also state terrorism, but that's not my area of expertise. 
Um, Hezbollah recruited differently in the sense of many of these organizations are brainwashing children. I took out, just for the purpose of brevity, I took out some of the slides looking at Hamas television. You know, they have children's television for five and six-year-olds where they have like a jihadi Mickey Mouse named Farfour. And while he was on, on TV, Israeli gunmen came in and they killed him. Like, can you imagine the five-year-old going, oh my God. So they do recruit differently. Um, some of the groups will say we don't activate the child until they're at least 16 or 17, but they've had them in these paradise camps or other kinds of training camps from a very early age. Let me just very quickly go through the differences. So I basically found five key differences between the child soldiers and the children and terrorist groups. One was um, the extent to which the parents were participating and alive. The stereotypical uh, story for the child soldier, like Ishmael Bey, the militia comes in, they kill the family, or they make the kid kill the family, or do something horrible so that they can't go back. And now the militia has the kid as the new family. Most of the terrorist groups, the parents are alive and they're giving the terrorists access to the kids. The second thing was the use of drugs. I broke down in chapter two, each conflict, um, many of the child soldier units use drugs, but different drugs, and for different purposes and at different times. So there was very little use of drugs for children in these terrorist organizations. And in fact, sometimes drugs were completely forbidden. The use of education also varied significantly. Um, the terrorist groups do educate the children because they're not, going to, they're not going to use them all as cannon fodder. They do want to make sure that they're prepping that next generation so that they do expend time and resources to educate them. As well as, what was the role for girls? Well, many of the terrorist groups do not use women on the front lines, whereas in the militias, we know from Diane Mazurana's work that as much as 30% of the militias in Africa used women on the front lines, not just as bushwives, sometimes as active participants. Wait, and there's one more. There's one more I'm forgetting. And I think it was just also community responses. Uh, so whether the parents were dead was one, but also was the community supportive of children's involvement in these, uh, in these activities? And you know, it's really something to say that when parents go on television and say, I wish I had more than one child for the cause, that the community is supporting children's involvement in ways that we definitely did not see in Africa. I have to be more brief with the questions because there's a list. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was wondering if uh, another uh, aspect of child terrorism is that it, it creates kind of a feedback loop because it allows uh, these terrorist groups to maybe more, elicit more empathy from uh, like the, the, the population, say, and, you know, a, a child is being killed if, if it was in combat, than say a, a normal just uh, military-age male. Do, do you find any instances of that being the case and that, that just really makes it more likely that the village doesn't, you know, want to turn in all of the, the, the terrorists or anything like that? So I made the distinction in the book between children who are killed and are used, their images used in order to recruit versus the children who are part of the organization fighting. And it was interesting, as I mentioned, so I, I only showed you the kids while they were alive. I have to tell you, uh, you know, the I've seen dead people. I've seen a lot of really horrible images that I will not share. What ISIS did, where if it was an ISIS cub, you saw the picture of the kid when he was alive. You might see the video of him blowing up, but you didn't see a corpse. There were a lot of dead children 
but not their kids. There was a lot of dead children in order to elicit the kinds of response, Liam, that you mentioned to outrage people. And you didn't even just need ISIS in order to be outraged. You just had to watch the BBC. You just had to watch the news of Gauta or look at what these what they consider and what I might even consider to be these corrupt regimes were doing to their own people. So with the adults, they did show dead people. With the adults, there was a series called The Smiling Martyr. So you'll have like a bunch of pictures of dead adults and they look peaceful and they're smiling. And ISIS would put this up on their network to say, look how wonderful it is to die a martyr's death. They felt no pain, they're smiling. There were no smiling kids. So really, they did make the distinction, and they were making very granular decisions about the kinds, you know, very curated images, about what kinds of images they were sharing with their fan base and which ones they weren't. And the dead kids that they showed were not ISIS kids. They might still be Syrian, Iraqi, Yemeni, uh, Marawi, uh, certainly Houthi. Like, all of these kids they will show. They will, they will talk about the Rohingya. They will talk about the Uyghurs, anything that is going to outrage people. And they do it very effectively, but they hold back from having people react. And part of this is they learned from the Taliban one thing. In 2007, there was a young boy, seven years old, named Juma Ghul. And uh, Juma goes up to the ANA, the Afghan National Army, and he says in Pashto, he goes, these men put this thing on me help. Now the kid's seven years old, but he was clever enough to go up to the soldiers. So what had happened? The, Pakistan, the Afghan Taliban had put a suicide vest on him and they said, go find some soldiers. And when you press the plunger, you will have, there will be flowers and there'll be food and there will be lemonade and it'll be wonderful. And this kid, clever enough to know, doesn't sound kosher. He probably didn't say kosher, but he said, that doesn't sound right. He went up, they very carefully took the bomb off of him, and in fact, Karzai had a big party for him and his brother. Now, the Pashtun Valley of his village were so angry that the Taliban had done that, that this village that previously had never worked with the Americans or helped the Americans, started helping the Americans. So in fact, it had the opposite effect. The, when the parents or the community were not on board, they made it very clear that kids could not be duped, tricked, or coerced. They had to be, as I mentioned, groomed. And the parents had to be groomed so that everybody was on board. And that's when I think they learned that lesson from 2007, and it's a different group, but they learned these lessons from 2007. And the groups, it's almost like um, a Kurth product cycle, right? There's a recycling of the information and the lessons learned and the best practices so that over time, they get better at it rather than worse. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I have a couple of questions, but I'll limit them. Um, the first is, why do you think, I know both Boko Haram and ISIS are Islamic State groups, why do you think one is willing to use women on the front lines and one isn't? Um, my second question is, um, after these children have been, as you call it, activated, I think, um, will they automatically join if they're not killed? Like, or are there some kids that like defect as they kind of reach maturity? Um, and then my third question is, what does grooming of an entire community look like? Like, how do these groups approach a community and get them on board? Okay, let me take it one by one. 
No, no, it's great. I, 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 you know, when I was having lunch, I said, no, don't give me easy questions. Give me the tough ones. Um, that's a great question. And I think that why Boko Haram is different from ISIS, it's going to sound really messed up. But, you know, all of the categories that I explained, was that Aaron? No, no, the first before the, with the shark. Alana. So the, the examples that I gave to Alana before, I knew it was an E, um, were that there were these five differences. And where does it get murky? African terrorist groups look a lot like African child soldier groups. And so that's where that middle category is. And I'm sitting there going, I can't make these fine distinctions that I could with all these other terrorist groups that I could in Africa. So the fact that ISIS... Boko Haram is called Wilayat Ifriqiya, which is the, the West African uh, province, is so completely different. Not only did they use women and girls, girls as young as six, they didn't rape the girls. Now, why is that important? ISIS raped little Yazidi girls, six and seven years old. We know this from um, Nadia Murad's biography. We know this from the reports that have come out of like nine-year-olds being pregnant. So. What I find interesting is that Boko Haram acts differently. Boko Haram is very strict about going green. Boko Haram is an environmental terrorist organization. They have now decided they're a green organization. If you violate that, I can't even imagine what the cost would be. But one of the things that it pushes us to realize is we have this tendency, for the purposes of categorization, to reify the groups. And we really do have to you know, nuance these groups a little bit and look at the data in a more granular level to make the distinctions that, you know, when you say ISIS, you say jihadis, and you don't make those distinctions, that's a problem. When I did the field research in Pakistan, there were four different rehabilitation facilities. And one of the facilities, the kids were drugged. And I thought, so not even within the same organization, um, in the same country, are you going to have these very robust differences with very fine categories and lines because you know you can have your theoretical framework but then reality is so much more messy so I don't know the answer why are they different they could be different because they're African they could be different because there's a long history with Boko Haram that is very different from the trajectory from Al-Qaeda in Iraq to ISIS it could be different because the leadership is different now let me go with defection there were a handful of kids who defected, but the parents were very often threatened. And that would be very similar to with grooming. Um, the last part of the model, as you can see here, coercion and maintenance of control. And so that was very powerful and incentive, uh, an incentive for children not to break from the ranks. Now, in terms of defection, as I mentioned before, the kids actually enjoyed the empowerment of making these life and death decisions, but they also, when you pull them out of the group, going back to the normal life of being a 14-year-old or a 13-year-old, started to feel unnatural for them. So that is where we saw very little defection. The defection I saw in Pakistan was different. It was very much along the lines of weapons of the week. The kids would make a mistake on, accident, by, like, on purpose, like not by accident. So for example, one kid was sent into a Shia mosque to blow up because again the Sunni Shia thing and he tripped and dropped his bomb so his parents wouldn't be killed by the Pakistani Taliban because he did carry out his mission but he got caught and so that's where you saw the defection wasn't a clear-cut 
people running away because there was nowhere to run to. It was people who would deliberately make mistakes in order to get caught, so there was plausible deniability because they were still feeling like they had to protect their families, including their extended families, from the predation of the group. And the last thing about grooming, well, they didn't always, they weren't always effective in grooming an entire society. They were grooming different segments of a society. And so what really struck me, and again, I'm going back to the field research in Pakistan. I spoke to a woman and she told me that, you know, she had a son who had um, a drinking and uh, an alcohol and drug problem. And she thought for sure that, you know, like Al-Anon, the terrorists would clean him up. She said, not only did they not clean him up, she's like, she said to me, they raped him. And I thought, okay, there is this weird tradition called Bachabazi, where little boys are like this third gender in many of these societies. So they're called beardless boys or boys for play, which is Bachabazi. And they're not men yet until they can grow facial hair. And so these children were abused. Now, what was problematic for her is she thought the terrorists were going to be the solution to the kids' problems, and instead they just made it worse. And that's how you groom a society. You portray yourself as you are going to uphold law and order. You're going to clean up, you know, for example, the IRA used to pretend that they were the ones that were cleaning up um, the communities from drugs, when in fact on the side they were the ones selling the drugs. So any drug runner in Northern Ireland that wasn't giving them a piece of the action, they would decap them or they would kill them, get rid of them. But then what they did was they took over the trade. The terrorist organizations are very good at convincing the population that they're really the good guys. And so when we're thinking about counter-narratives, all we have to do is expose the truth to show that in fact not only are the good guys, not only is the Pakistani Taliban not going to fix your kid, they're going to mess with your kid, that's really going to give those parents pause about whether or not they're going to readily hand over their children to the Taliban. How am I on time? Am I okay? Okay. Oh, okay. I thought at 5.30. I thought I'd gone over. Oh, excellent. Um, Eugene. Uh, thanks, Mia. This is... Uh, Depressing. Yeah. And gruesome, but interesting, as many of the things we're interested in are like. Um, so I wonder, I mean, we're interested in this topic, and you have all these great, well-put-together examples, vignettes, the horror shows that we want to know about and try to understand that you really chase down, right? It's really good work to figure all that out. Um, and so like, we want to read your book. Like, your book is interesting. So, so, so now, okay, excellent. Um, as a, uh, but I wonder what we can say as social scientists. And the, the um, I guess the question, you find so much diversity in the way children are employed, or whether they use children, or kinds of children, or you know how they got there. All of these different things. Like there's lots of um, fine-grained detail. Um, I wonder if child terrorists is a useful category. Like we're interested in children. We want to know, but as a social science trying to understand terrorist groups' behavior. Is child a relevant variable? Or is this some reflection of something else? Like some groups, for some reason, do a whole host of things that we think of as pretty nasty, and other groups act differently. And what's really going on is that 
groups are different, we want to know about terrorist groups, and just one implication of that, or one thing that you might see from that, is some variation in how they handle children. But um, maybe what you want to do is to understand the difference among groups, is collect a bunch of data, not just about, not focus on the children, right? Like we focus on the children because there's this horrible fascination with understanding children, and so you should write a book about children terrorists, but analytically, is this the right way to approach understanding terrorists? So that's why I started with the um, economic substitution model. I think that it really is important in order for us to understand that we've ignored the role of children. So where have children talked? We've talked about children with child protection. We've talked about children in the medical literature. We've talked about children in the psychological literature. But political science has largely ignored these kids. And I thought if I use sort of a hybrid um, sort of offensive realist slash economic substitution model, it could explain not just uh, which groups are going to use kids, but at what period in the conflict they're going to use them, and perhaps what benefit they see. And the fact that they weren't just using them as cannon fodder the way the child soldier units were using them, so it wasn't just simply substitution, sometimes it was the complementary elements of it, gives us this understanding both of the terrorist as a rational actor, of the terrorist as an organization that is able to make these distinctions amongst its population of recruits of how to activate and resonate best with its community because it's very sensitive. So on the one hand, it validates some of the things that I wrote in 2005 in Dying to Kill, that the groups themselves are sensitive to the opinion of their constituencies in a way that we don't expect from terrorist groups to be uh, responsive. But as social scientists, I think that, I guess what I would push for is we need to draw from other subfields in order to genuinely understand um, not just the grand theoretical approach to understanding terrorism, but the very specific application elements of these. So I couldn't have done this work if I didn't know about psychology. I couldn't have done this work without economic models. I couldn't have done this work because there was no, there was no existing framework. So it could be that it might be a little too rudimentary at this stage compared to um, more developed theories in IR that have had more than, um, this is the first day it's out, so more than a few years in the process of development. But I certainly think that the child terrorist is an important category for understanding not just how children are used now, but what to do with them later. Are they, for example, are they salvageable? Well, that's something that many countries are facing right now. And the data uh, drawing from 20 years of the DDR programs for child soldiers is very surprising. Here's what the data says. The very young children, and I know this is going to be counterintuitive if you're like really into like touchy-feely psychology, the very young kids are going to be fine. Yeah, they're probably traumatized slightly, but they're going to forget. So that four-year-old that shot someone in the head, he'll be fine. The older kids who can hearken back to a childhood prior to the conflict, you can capitalize that during the process of um, rehabilitation and reintegration. So those kids are going to be, I mean, with some effort, of course, they're going to be okay. The ones that are most dangerous are the ones that are 12 and 13. In other words, governments are not willing to let in 
the 16 and 17 year olds because they're worried about what these children are going to be capable of and are they future Manchurian candidates. And they're thinking the really young kids are fine, but it's actually um, a U-shaped curvilinear response that kids that have no memories other than the war and are of a certain age are actually the most at risk. And they're not necessarily at risk for being reactivated as a, as a terrorist. They're at risk for any number of very negative psychological sequelae because some of the same skill sets that they were taught as terrorists will be very useful for criminal gangs and for drug lords and for other kinds of very negative activity. So in terms of the theoretical approach, the theory really does argue that one, we need, to under, we need to address this issue. We need to take children seriously as actors, but then we need to use other subfields to understand the more granular elements. So I don't know if I answered that to your satisfaction because you're frowning. So I might need a little bit more. I might need more time to think about it. I think the key thing is, again, you gave more knowledge in the answer, which was terrific, like understanding about the child soldiers, the, the, these different schools, like that was more terrific knowledge. But the, the theory about the, uh, you know, from labor economics about child labor didn't work for you. Like you didn't find, oh yes, the child labor theory explains child <coughs> terrorists. What you found out it is varies. that it varies. <coughs> that this theory doesn't explain it. There's something else that's going on. That, like, if you look more fine-grained at the groups, some groups find a use under this circumstance, but not that circumstance. Sometimes substitutes, sometimes a complement. So actually, the theory didn't get Well, no, the theory provided an opportunity to introduce the different cases to show that there's variation. But the variation doesn't follow the predictions of that particular theory. It follows more complex, like you can add supplementary auxiliary theories to explain the case. You can complicate the situation to come up with stories for each of the theories. It's absolutely not, and I will say this with pride, it is not going to be a parsimonious theory. It's not going to be a theory that's explained by one single variable because even our dear friend at Chicago, we have seen there are problems with just saying, it's about the occupation. So, I mean, it could be the fact that I'm originally trained as a comparativist, that I sort of bled into IR, literally and figuratively, that makes me more comfortable with a complex conjunctural theory that shows variation. So that even, you know, a null hypothesis is a hypothesis. All right. Congratulations on the book, Mia. It's great that you're uh, able to uh, launch it here first. Um, let me go back to the uh, substitution versus complementary uh, arguments, because um, I'm not, I'm not, sh I mean, I'm uh, have great revulsion that children are being used this way. So uh, understanding this, you know, on a, as a moral issue uh, is pretty clear. But in terms of the, the two broad categories of arguments, um, I, I guess I, I'm not satisfied uh, that I understand which is right more often, or at least under what circumstances. I mean, it, as I understand it, that if the substitution argument is right, you know, in a perverse sense, 
that could be good news because that probably indicates that the terrorist organization is running out of able-bodied uh, males between 18 and you know 28 or whatever, um, and that you know this is a natural part of a life cycle that could indicate the uh, the decline. <laughs> Uh, conversely, the complementarity <coughs> argument, if that's what's going on in a lot of cases, that's really quite worrisome. And I could see, you know, logically why, why that would be a problem. It's uh, difficult, I think, for most people to regard a child uh, as a, the same sort of threat as you would uh, uh, regard an adult. So I, th I think in terms of, I, I think I'm on the same basic wave, wavelength with Eugene on this. In terms of understanding the strategic problem of uh, childhood terrorism, I'm not <coughs> sure what I should take away from your, your argument. Is this, you know, sort of the last gasp of ISIS that they, they were throwing, you know, the cooks, uh, the medics, the file keepers, and the kids into the line? Uh, or is it yet another permutation where they've found a new group to use that actually is going to be a force multiplier, something that'll be here to stay? Okay, so I've had a second more to process Eugene's question and your question. The theory in terms of substitute versus complementary was to encompass all the cases. If I was focusing on ISIS, it's definitely more substitution than it is complementary. If I was looking at Hamas, it's complementary versus substitution because the little bodies can get through the tunnels in ways that the adults can't. And so that's, I realized, I should have probably mentioned that earlier, where when I looked at the, the complementary versus substitute, it was for the entirety of, of the use of children by these groups. But then each group either fell, for the most part, on one side or the other. And a lot of it, as I showed in, the, in one of the slides, here, a lot of it depended um, at what point in the conflict this was introduced and also what was the ideology of the conflict. Because if the ideology of the conflict generally objected to the use of children, that overrode any, overrode any of the strategic considerations. So for example, um, the European terrorist groups absolutely refused to use kids. Now, would it have been beneficial to the Bader Meinhof or to the Red Brigades or to the IRA, we don't know because they had an ideology that absolutely refused to engage children. And in fact, when I did interviews in Northern Ireland, uh, one woman, Siobhan, told me she had to lie to the IRA when she was 15 years old to say she was 17 so that they would even let her join. So this is to encompass not just ISIS, but if you were, this allows us to put into the different categories which groups are using them complementarily and which ones are using them as a substitute. And then understanding at what temporal period, for example, Mike, as you clearly figured out, that they were using the kids, because I mentioned with ISIS, it was plus or minus a month after the loss in battle, it definitely was a substitute effect. But the complementarity was the way in which they use the kids tactically. The way that they use so that the kids goading the adults on the Dawa caravan were different than the kids that were substituting the adults in battle. And that we have to go down one more level of granularity to say, then they made the distinction between Iraqi and Syrian kids 
and British kids, or Iraqi and Syrian kids and German kids. Now, many of these kids died anyways. Um, I, will, I, I mentioned this to the very nice booksellers outside. I chose this image on purpose because I had this instinctive feeling that if I put an Iraqi or a Syrian kid on the cover, there would be people in Indiana that didn't care. But you put a blonde hair, blue-eyed kid on the cover wearing an ISIS headband, and that's going to be a lot more um, pushing their expectations of what a cute, like that's a cute kid. That's not a kid that they're going to be like, oh, yeah, sure. These poor kids, they do this all the time. Now, with the let me give you one more example of the complementarity of why I think it's important. What it allows us, us to do is to go through the conflicts when they use kids, and I actually refrained from using the, the use of the term child terrorists or kitty commandos or um, kitty jihadis. And there were a lot of terms in the literature and in the media that I actually found kind of offensive, was to look at, at what, to what degree is their voluntariness, to what degree are the kids self-selecting. And that was also sort of at the individual level of analysis important to understand that there was agency. And the reason we knew there was agency and that these kids were not just brainwashed, thoughtless automatons is that um, in, in Chad, there were two Boko Haram girls who went in with a suicide bomb in order to kill, you know, the IDPs that were in the refugee camp. And they saw, one of the girls saw her family. She dropped the bomb. So in other words, even the children have agency. And this, again, is a very unusual and new approach to the understanding of child studies that has completely taken any agency from these kids, that the kids have no choice. And so that was part of what I was also trying to do. In terms of theoretical contribution, I was trying to show that it wasn't just this heuristic of complementary versus substitute, but also that we needed to empower the way we thought about children's choices, that if the children could choose, they could make the right choices. And it was also to identify what, what periods of time in that model, that very complicated grooming model, you could intervene and cut the cycle. But no, absolutely, you're right. The moral aspect of this is horrific, but all the more reason why I was sort of insisting that we understand. So hopefully now I've done slightly better in responding to your concerns. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, did you notice a significant difference in internal versus external use of Western children for propaganda? I mean, is this you know radicalizing foreigners or boosting internal legitimacy or psychologically shaming adult fighters within their belief into fighting? Um, they didn't make a lot of distinctions between what was internal and what was external propaganda. But I do know, for example, um, there was Al-Naba, which is a newspaper that they distribute. Al-Naba first started out as distributing by hand and that they were only doing it locally, and then it went online. And so every Tuesday you would have Al-Naba for the global audience. Uh, they highlighted the role of the... Uh, yesterday in the video he uses the term Tabat, which like the other term in Arabic would be sumud or steadfastness. They highlighted the role of how steadfast and committed the children were, definitely in order to convince the adults 
to join, and it could be again because of lagging periods of recruitment, either because they were having a hard time recruiting when they didn't have the same resources to pay the salaries. You know, they cut their salaries in 2015 because uh, they didn't have the same money that they did in 2014. Uh, but also, you didn't see as much the distinction between what was said in Arabic versus what was said in English. And I'll give you an example. A lot of propaganda in the Palestinian case and even in the Tamil case, what's said in the local language is much more radicalized than what has been translated into English. Because ISIS translated everything into 25 different languages, there was a certain amount of consistency. And so one of the reasons that the research, the other project I showed you about the caliphate, uh, documenting it is, we have a number of different accounts, anonymous accounts on the, on the platform. Some are designated as abus, as male, some as ums, as female, but in various languages. And so we're actually looking at those differences between what do they say in French versus what do they say in Turkish versus Russian versus Arabic versus English and so on and so forth. And so those kinds of differences, I might know more in a year. But at least for now, with regard to the kids, they don't make those distinctions. But the big distinction that I, that I did notice was not showing their dead kids, but showing other people's dead kids. And it reminded me of uh, one of the projects that I did in grad school of groups using women who were raped. So like, oh, they don't talk, they're raping our women. You know, it's like, they, we, very, very often, the women that are raped are not women of the organization. It's just in order to cause outrage to the men. But they never say we're raping their women. And so there is really this notion of ownership of the atrocity of who's willing to admit to conducting, that, conducting it and condoning it versus who isn't. But I'm going to keep, I'm, I'm making a little asterisk that I'm going to keep my eye out for that. The internal versus external. Thank you so much, Sean. Yeah, so it's just curiosity. Like, where did you find these platforms, like these social media platforms, and can you just like get an account? Like, how did you go about that? And okay. So, about so what happened is around December 2015, ISIS previously had been using the open API platforms, places um, like Facebook and Twitter, and you know again because of the active policing of social media companies and closing the accounts, around December 2015, January 2016, they switched to this thing called Telegram. Telegram was originally created by Pavel Durov, who is the Russian inventor of their version of Facebook called Vikontakt. And so this platform was originally intended to not be easily accessible and to be sort of a semi-encrypted, semi-dark web. Because I had been doing this for a long time, I got in, I was an early adopter, I got in early, and at some point, one of my uh, accounts was doxxed, and so I, I lost my New York City cell phone number, and the FBI made me. They were so mean to me. But anyway, yeah, so one of the accounts is doxxed, which actually has still generated really interesting research findings to see, because we have now an account that's been blown. The cover is blown, but we still have five other accounts where it's not. So we're able to measure how quickly I get kicked out of a chat room or a channel versus the other accounts. But so you go onto Telegram. Over time, I had to learn to use burner phones in order to get access to the platform, uh, VPNs. Uh, we have a chapter coming up in Peter Krauss and Ora Sezik Lee's um, 
handbook on field research about this. And I'm happy I can send you an advanced copy so you can see specifically what we did. But one of the things we also had to do with my grad students, we have to have a psychiatrist on call because the stuff is really awful. And so we also have a protocol in place that you don't look at the platform before bed and you know, or before dinner, you take lots of breaks, go outside for a walk. You know, there's, there's different ways of approaching the platform. We had an IRB to do it, to observe but not participate, and here's where it got interesting. At some point, because I, we did the women, we had ooms, no picture, because of course not allowed. I'm getting invitations to Syria and marriage proposals, and I'm like, okay, well, this is gonna violate my IRB, so. But like, there were different people reaching out to me, and at some point, I opened up the platform, and my computer started ringing, I did not know it could do that. And it was ISIS calling. And I didn't want to answer. I really didn't want to answer. And I'm like in Arabic typing, uh, like I'm at work, they're watching me. And I'm just like, that's when the account was blown. When I came across as a lurker, because the IRB allowed me to observe, but not participate. And so there are different ways to do this safely, but you have to have all the VPNs and other things in place. You also, it helps. As uh, Dan very kindly mentioned, it helps I speak all the languages, so I'm able to see those differences between the Russian, the Arabic, and the French. That's one heck of a way to end the sponsor's <laughs> video. Thank you guys so much and for your great questions. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers not of the international security center or the university of notre dame which take no institutional position music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap <laughs>